Welcome to the Practical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. She's hosting a swap party in Gordon. Welcome to the Practical Research Parenting Podcast, episode number three. Um, so today I'll be looking at a review of five sleep training methods. Um, before I get on to that though, I, I will do a very short plug for my swap party. You can choose to swap, donate or buy. So swapping has a $10 cover charge, but um, you can swap by the kilo. Um, donating is free, obviously. And if you want to buy, it's just a dollar per 100 grams. So um, that's about a dollar per item. Um, so yeah, an opportunity to swap your kids' old clothes for effectively new, t- new clothes. So if you're interested and in the Gordon area, go to www kidsswapparty.com.au. So there's double S, double P because it's in kids and swap and swap and party. Um, Yeah, so that's that. And let's get on to the content for today. So for an outline, we're looking at a review of Mindell and colleagues' um, 2006 paper, which reviewed five different approaches to sleep training. Um, This has been one of my most popular posts and I thought I'd share it by audio as well. Um, So the five methods are, one, prevention education, uh, two, positive routines including faded bedtime, um, three, scheduled awakenings, um, and four and five, which I'm lumping together, are cry it out and control crying. Um, so for each, I'm going to describe what it involves, um, what, what the approach evo- involves, um, the efficacy um, as found by these studies, the philosophy behind it and the appropriate age based on the theory and what ages it's actually been tested in. Okay, so the first of those methods is prevention education. Um, so this is based on five large evaluation studies, um, which each gave parents slightly different advice. They all recruited parents early, um, usually during pregnancy. I think only one of the studies recruited them when their babies were three months old, um, but most of them started during pregnancy. Um, so I went through all those studies and I looked at what what advice they actually gave people. And so I'm going to give you the most common advice um, from the most common to the least common. Um, so one of the pieces of advice that they all gave was to lie your baby in, in their cot, sleepy but awake. Uh, so I discussed this in episode one. Um, certainly is empirical support for this, um, but as I discussed in episode one, it can also put unnecessary stress on parents um, and just because it's best practice, don't expect it to always work um, and don't beat yourself up if it doesn't work, basically. Um, So one of the studies actually recognised that sometimes this won't work for you um, and it went on to suggest something you could do, um, which was that you change one thing and then try again for 10 minutes before changing another thing. So you might, um, for example, check their nappy um, or change their temperature, take layers out off or put layers on and then try for another 10 minutes, see if that helps them settle, Um, burping them, um, try that for 10 minutes and see if that settles them Um, and then stroking, talking softly, um, talking softly or cuddling them if necessary, um, that sort of thing to see if that helps them settle um, and then settle lying down ideally. Um, So I think this this idea is quite 
a good one. I've certainly used um, circular routines quite frequently. Um, so that's where you have once they're down and in theory they're going to go to sleep um, and in practice they don't, uh, you have a set of systems that you or things that you try before, again, lying them in their cot. Um, so another piece of advice that a lot of these studies gave was the importance of routine. Uh, so some of them mentioned specifics um, like recommending that you dream feed, feed your baby between 10 p.m. and midnight. And if you haven't f- heard of a dream feed, it's basically where you pick your baby up, still asleep, and arouse them just enough to for them to feed and then put them back down. Um, dream feed works for some people and not for others. It worked for me with Xander, um, but with Beth it seems she just wakes up you know, soon after the dream feed anyway, um, if that's the normal time for waking. So it doesn't seem to add anything for Beth. So it's worth a try and for some people it will work and so for some it won't. Um, another piece of advice was to bath at the same time each day. Another piece of advice that they all, a lot of them give is to maximise the difference between day and night. Um, so you've probably heard this advice be- before, basically making the daytime noisier, lighter and more activity during the day than the night. Um, so that's to basically teach their body clock day from night. And one of them recommended that you respond to their physical needs at night with dim lights um, but avoid playing and socialising. A lot of them, um, not these studies in particular, but a lot of people will recommend avoiding eye contact I've never been comfortable with that. I like to maintain eye contact but just make it clear that it's not playtime, it's quiet time. Um, Another piece of advice that a few of them gave was to stretch the intervals between night feeds once their weight gain is sufficient and obviously you'd want to check with your paediatrician whether they think weight gain is sufficient and at what stage this might be safe to do. Um, They found that in this, in the study that did recommend this, that parents rarely followed it. Um, so certainly the results they saw are not necessarily due to this. That doesn't mean it doesn't work, just it wasn't the driver of these results. Um, I also find that advice a bit difficult because it's, it's hard to know when babies are genuinely hungry, um, especially with growth spurts during which they do need more milk. And another piece of advice that's fairly common is to respond to crying but not fretting. Um, so, and learning the difference between those two is the difficulty there. Okay, so these studies basically gave this sort of advice to parents and then they measured the efficacy. Um, we don't know from the studies exactly which of this advice was efficacious, um, but we do know that overall giving this sort of advice to parents did help um, because they found that the parents who were given this advice um, compared to parents not given any advice, a control group, um, found that their babies were more likely to sleep for five-plus continuous hours um, at six to nine weeks of age and 12 weeks of age. Um, In the study that measured them at 12 weeks of age, it found they were 2.5 times more likely Um, So that's for every two control babies who slept five-plus continuous hours um, during the night. There were five of the babies with educated parents um, who slept five-plus continuous continuous hours, and that's education in terms of this sort of advice given to the parents, not not uni degrees or anything like that. Um, 
So they also found that the the babies with educated parents um, woke and fed less frequently at night, uh, between six to nine weeks, um, but they still drank as much as their counterparts. Um, they just drank it more during the day than the night, um, and same at nine months of age. They also found they slept longer totally at night, um, total sleep was longer, um, and had fewer difficulties settling to sleep at nine months. Um, so one of the limitations of these studies was that very few of them actually had long-term follow-up. Pretty sure the one where they were looking at them at nine months, um, they'd implemented it at three months, so it was only a six-month follow-up. Um, and for the others, it was it was largely in weeks rather than months. Um, I used this with Beth, certainly a lot more than I did with Xander because I read this since having Xander in that age range. Um and I did see these results. I thought, wow, this is magic because at about six to nine weeks, um, Beth did start sleeping five plus hours continuous at night. And I thought, great, wonderful. I've got this sorted. Um, and well, I, I'm pretty sure that since changed, she's still waking up two to three times a night, just as she did at birth. So, um, so it doesn't, it's not necessarily going to help you in the long term. And these studies didn't really look into the long term effectiveness. Um, so as always, you can see the references to these in the show notes. Sorry, I haven't been telling you about them, um, but they are in the show notes. So that's at practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash sleep training. So that's forward slash sleep training um, for this one. Okay, so the ph- philosophy behind this one is that you're setting up good habits early. And I say good in quotation marks um, because this is based on Western ideals of independence, um, but also pragmatic preferences for feeding more during the day than the night. Um, but these preferences or these ideals may not necessarily fit your family. I know there's some working mothers who prefer to feed more at night than during the day because they don't want to express as much for during the day and because the nighttime when they're feeding their baby is, is their sort of reconnection and bonding time. So um, this advice may not necessarily fit your family, so you need to take that into account. Um, it, and also trying to stick, um, too strongly to this advice can produce a lot of added stress. I've found, um, parenting and parenting is hard enough, um, without needing that. Um, so see my first episode. So how, for how these sort of steps can be incorporated into your settling routine, um, but without them being the must happen thing or stressing out when it doesn't work. Um, in terms of the age, um, this advice was given at pregnancy or at three months. Most of the advice um, fits with any age range, but um, the some of the advice, such as giving a bath at the same time each day, is more likely to be effective after they've started establishing a body, body clock, so that's after about 10 to 12 weeks. Okay. So the next one is positive routines and faded bedtime. Um, so positive routines are a cornerstone of any sleep training technique, really. Most sleep tra- training techniques you hear about will probably recommend a positive routine. 
Um, so you probably know what this is. It's basically a short bedtime routine. Often they recommend less than 20 minutes and these studies certainly did. Um, and these studies recommended four to seven quiet positive activities. Um, so positive in terms of your baby usually enjoys them and positive in terms of a positive interaction between you and your baby. It should be time where you can focus completely on your baby. Um, so unfortunately, um, positive routines alone with a baby rarely mean much. I, I certainly found this. I'd run a routine, put baby in their cot, and then there'd be a lot of other things that happened before that baby would actually fall asleep. So, um, so that's where the faded bedtime comes in. Um, the faded bedtime is about trying to form an association between that routine and falling asleep. Um, so the four steps in this approach is firstly to determine their natural sleep time. Um, so how they recommended doing this was basically letting the baby stay up um, and seeing when they would naturally fall asleep. Um, that will work for some people and, or some babies and, and probably not for others. Others will probably keep themselves up well past their natural sleep time, um, just if there's enough stimulation about. Um, but, yeah, in whatever way seems right for your baby, you determine the natural sleep time. Once you've done that and you've chosen your short bedtime routine, um, then you start implementing that bedtime routine when the natural sleep time is approaching and they're slow, showing signs that they are a bit sleepy or very sleepy. Um, then once they're falling asleep quickly after the routine, you start moving the routine start time earlier and early by, earlier by 15 to 30 minutes each night, night by night or week by week. Um, and I'd say how you'd approach that in terms of how quickly you change it would be um, you'd be watching how quickly your baby is falling asleep, move it um, back forward you know, earlier by 15 or 30 minutes and then see if they're still falling asleep quickly. And if they're not, then you might stick with that time for a bit longer before moving, to, moving it um, earlier again. Um, so in terms of the efficacy of this approach, um, they did find that it decreased the frequency and duration of bedtime tantrums um, compared to control groups. And they also found, interestingly, that it had, had comparable improvements um, to controlled crying. So that's very good because controlled crying has been very extensively studied and is quite a, quite a widely used approach because it, it does tend to be shown to be effective. Um, but do wait till I talk about it in more comprehensively later before you go on and try it. Um, okay, so the philosophy behind this one is that you're – producing a calm, happy mood through your um, positive bedtime routine that is conducive to sleep. Um, it also is producing a chain of events that become associated with sleep um, and as we, which is something we sort of touched on a little bit last week. Um, and you're also praising and hopefully increasing the appropriate behaviour. So that's something I didn't mention is um, the idea is that you're praising um, the child when they follow through with the routine. I'm actually not a big fan of praising. I think it's um, important early on because it shows children um, what they need to do to feel like they belong and like they're contributing and helping um, and it certainly is a, a communication method for what's right and, and wrong in terms of behaviour. Um, but as soon as possible I like to move towards um, sort of more autonomy-supportive Ideas. Um, so once they're old enough, I'd move towards letting them control 
um, the steps in the routine. Um, so how I'd recommend doing that is you can either make a poster with your child um, showing all the different steps in the routine and then get them to lead you through it. So, okay, okay, darling, what's next on the routine? Okay, it's this, okay, we'll do that. Um, so once they're sort of up to that that sort of ability cognitively, that can be a really nice way of doing it because then it's not you dictating, it's them, um, but you are sort of uh, facilitating getting them to look at the routine and tell you what's next and that sort of thing. Um, and what I do at the moment, I haven't actually built a, a chart like that. I've been using the clock. So I tell Xander each night, okay, when your clock says six, five something, then it's going to be time to start your routine. Um, so that we'll start with brushing your teeth. And then I get him to go and see what his clock says. And it says six, four something. Okay, good. We have a bit of time to play. And then he goes in or I ask him to go in and see what his clock says. And he said, oh, six, five, zero, six, five something or six, five, zero. Um, and he'll tell me that it's it's now time to start brushing his teeth. Um, so that's nice. It sort of gives him a sense that he's controlling the routine rather than me um, and it sort of makes it external to me. It's the clock that determines when the routine starts, so that's quite nice as well. Okay, so I used um, and I've used with both Beth and Xander, um, a routine-based approach called the Dream Baby Guide, um, which is a very comprehensive book which covers a lot, including positive routines. Um, but something I found really useful from that book, which I use for bedtime routines and a lot of other things, and I've found it really invaluable with um, with Xander, and I'm certainly using it as well with Beth, um, is using words to forewarn. So, for example, I'll say almost time for change story sleep, for example, or last one, then it's time for change story sleep. And then when it's time, okay, it's time for change story sleep. Um, so I found that really useful for um, not surprising and shocking Xander when it's time. Um, and, yeah, he does seem to react a lot better and um, I avoid tantrums if I do forewarn a bit. Okay, so the ages that they looked at this with, they only tested it with one to four-year-olds. Um, theoretically, you'd need them to have a fairly well-established body clock, so you wouldn't expect this to work until after 10 to 12 weeks when they're establishing that body clock, but probably a little while after that and once it's it's really fairly firmly established. Um, but, yeah, as I said, they only tested it in one to four-year-olds. Okay, so tech num technique number three is scheduled awakenings. Um, this is quite a counterintuitive approach because it involves waking your baby um, and it addresses night wakings but it doesn't address settling issues. So if your baby's having trouble settling to sleep, this is not going to help um, but it will help um, potentially if they have night wakings. So there are three steps in scheduled awakenings. So the first is to determine their natural waking times. Um, so this is night wakings. So, for example, it might be 10, 2 and 
four. I think they're quite common awakenings if they're not sure how to settle back to sleep. But um, yeah, so you determine when their natural waking times are and then you slightly arouse and comfort your baby 15 to 60 minutes prior. So that would be at nine, one and three in my example, for example, um, or after those times, slightly after those times. So at those times you slightly arouse and comfort your baby back to sleep um, and then you gradually fade out these scheduled awakenings. So the idea is that these scheduled awakenings um, preclude the need for their um, spontaneous awakenings and that once they're trained out of doing the spontaneous awakenings then they, they will no longer do them um, is sort of the idea behind this. So in terms of the efficacy, Overall, they reduced night wakings, um, but it did tend to take a long time. And the problem with overall results is you don't see the case-by-case results because obviously your baby is going to be just one case. Um, so you can't know whether your baby, whether it's going to work for your baby or not. And this applies to all of the things I've talked about so far as well. Um, but I did look into specifically the case-to-case, case-by-case um, scenarios in these studies. Um, in one of the studies, five out of the 12 babies had to return to the baseline because of teething or something like that. Um, and that is a risk with this one because it can take sex such a long time, um, take any four weeks in your baby's life and most probably something's come up, a developmental mind, milestone or teething or that sort of thing. Um, so five, almost half of the babies had to return to baseline um, due to those sort of disruptions. Of the ones that um, didn't have to return to baseline, there was an eight-month-old who took four and a half weeks before they dropped all night wakings. Um, dropping all night wakings sounds pretty good at the moment. Um, there was a 16-month-old who dropped all night wakings in the first week. That would be very nice. There was a 16-month-old who dropped all night wakings after four and a half weeks but then started waking on 50% of the nights again. Um, and in the 24 to 30-month-olds, generally there was a decrease in the percentage of nights when they were waking in the first two weeks, um, but very few of them dropped their night wakings completely even after four weeks. Um, in another study, they found that the wakings on average, on average across all the babies were two per night in the baseline level. Um, and then they halved um, down to 1.1 in the third and fourth weeks um, and then dropped below the average of one in subsequent weeks. Um, but the control group um, also decreased to 1.1 in the same time period, um, but it didn't go lower than one in that period. Um, so, again, it was overall a, a significant um, difference. So I think whether this is going to work for you probably depends on the problem, also depends what sort of disruptions you're going to get in the next few weeks, um, but I guess that's always the case. So I think apparently this sort of method is quite effective for night, tre- night terrors and I'll talk about why this that might be in a moment. Um, another problem with these was, again, there was limited follow-up, so we're not not sure how long that lasts and I'm not convinced that it will be um, very effective long term Um, and I'll get into that in a moment too. So the philosophy behind this, um, so there's a number of reasons why they might do this. 
Firstly, they might be trying to disrupt the sleep cycle. Um, however, this would only be expected to delay the night wakings, not pr- to prevent them. Alternatively, but these schedule awakenings may actually be helpful in addressing overtiredness um, because you're arousing and getting your baby back to sleep earlier, um, which basically you're preventing them from becoming fully awake. So you're, um, you're being there to comfort them back to sleep almost immediately um, and avoiding their spontaneous night waking. So that may well mean that one sleep cycle they don't fully wake up before going to the next sleep cycle, which makes sure that they get a bit more sleep um, before they have a natural night waking and at that stage they might be able to better fall asleep from it. And that would, might explain um, why it's considered effective for night terrors because night terrors are associated with, um, with lack of sleep or overtiredness. Um, so maybe getting them being there to help them through that first um, change in sleep cycle is helpful to get them the sleep they need to overcome the overtiredness. So that that's a potential mechanism for operation. Okay, so the final two techniques are cry it out and control crying techniques, and you've probably heard of these. Um, so I've lumped them together because they are based on the same philosophy, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so cry it out, the idea is that you put your baby in their cot and you leave them until the morning or a, a set time in the morning um, dis- despite what whatever noises they make. Um, thankfully, parents weren't very good at adhering to this, um, which uh, to us as parents probably comes as no surprise. Um, and so that's where controlled crying came in. So that's where parents were now allowed to go in and check um, their babies and give a limited response. So not picking them up, but patting them at set intervals of time. So not in response to crying, but at set interv- intervals of time after crying starts. Um, so I'll talk more about my thoughts on this in, in the philosophy bit. But first of all, I'll talk about the efficacy in terms of the studies that have looked at it. Um, so this has been extensively studied um, and they have found that the, it reduces bedtime troubles and night wakings. Um, there's no firm evidence of harm. Some There is, in fact, some evidence of improvements, um, such as improvements in security, likability, emotionality and tension in the children who, who undergo this, this sleep training method compared to control group. Um, however, I would argue that these um, these benefits are probably the benefit that you'd expect um, once you counteract sleep deprivation. So I think um, parents who are extremely sleep deprived are probably they probably don't have the capacity um, to be fully responsive to their children during the day, um, and getting that sleep back um, and getting, therefore, that responsiveness back is going to have a lot of um, benefits for their children. So I think there certainly are times when, in in dire cases, when this sort of technique is likely to do more good than harm um, if, as I say, it's returning the sleep to parents that they need to be more responsive to their children. Um, but Personally, I'd try other techniques first. So the philosophy behind this, um, it's based on the psychology of extinction. Um, so that 
that theory is basically that an action such as crying um, elicits a reward such as parental presence. So when they cry, they get, a, they get rewarded because you come back and you hug them or whatever you do. Um, and the idea of extinction is that you're then taking away the reward, so you're taking away the parental presence, um, and the idea is that then the action that is aimed at getting that reward will become extinct. They'll stop crying, um, which is sort of what you're aiming to do, I guess. Um, so that's, that's the idea, whole idea behind it. And this has been, this is a, a well-established phenomenon. When things are rewarded, they get done more. And when you take away the reward that, um, they do that action less. Um, however, I have a number of issues with this, um, three to be specific. <laughs> so crying, firstly, crying is baby's primary means of communication. And it doesn't seem right to me that we should be teaching babies that that communication is not going to be rewarded. I think that babies do need to learn to communicate with us. And if crying is the only way they can do that, I, I think it's important to respond to that. Um, the second reason is that um, controlled crying and cried out techniques do need to be repeated often. Um, so a phenomena with extinction generally, but it has also been observed with um, cried out and controlled crying techniques, is that doing that action will spontaneously return um, as if they're trying it to see if maybe it will bring the reward this time. Um, and when it spontaneously returns, then people are forced to repeat the whole um, controlled crying process again or, or cry it out um, process again. And, of course, there are many disruptions in babies' growth, such as teething and illness and developmental milestones, et cetera, that are going to make um, – that are going to disrupt this process and make it very hard and possibly not right for the parent to, to leave the baby without comfort. So, yeah, it needs to be repeated often many times, which is painful for both the mother and the baby. I, I have tried this. I did try this with Xander. Um, I didn't try it for long. It just didn't, it didn't feel right to me that it was, it just didn't feel natural to listen to him cry. Um, and I haven't done it since. And I, I believe that there are more gentle methods of getting your sleep back. And we'll be talking a bit about those in this podcast as we have and in future podcasts. So um, the th my third reason for not liking this approach is um, the baby's behaviour to me seems very much like um, the poor animals in the learned helplessness experiments. And I'm not sure if you know about these experiments. Again, very cruel. Um, but they put animals in a cage and ran an electric shock through the floor. Um, and the animals would fight and claw at the cage and try to open doors and jump to the roof and just do everything they could to try to escape this horrible, painful cage. And they'd do that um, each time the electric shock came on and then they'd do it a bit less and a bit less and then eventually they'd just sit there and whimper with this electric shock going. And once they reached that stage, then the experimenter would open the door and then start the electric shock again 
and they would still just lie there and whimper because they'd learnt that they were helpless to stop this pain, um, which is just so sad. Um, but, yeah, babies seem to do very similar things. They'll they'll cry and they'll kick and they'll fight and they'll throw things and all sorts of things to try to stop you from doing this and to try to get out of this situation. Um, and then if they learn that you're not coming or you're only going to pat them, then eventually they'll they'll fall asleep from exhaustion and after a few nights they, they won't even fight. Um, so we don't know for sure that that's learned helplessness, but it's very similar behaviour and, um, yeah, doesn't doesn't sound right to me. There was also a study by Middlemiss um, that suggested that babies are learning not to cry rather than learning to calm themselves. Um, so this is based on the fact that they had the same level of cortisol after crying themselves to sleep as they did three or four nights later when they silently settled to sleep. Um, so cortisol, of course, is is related to stress, so you get more cortisol in your system after you've been stressed. Um, so the suggestion here is that babies who were silent were just as stressed as the babies who were crying. Um, but this needs a lot more research. Um, for example, we don't know whether the babies were just better able to handle this level of stress um, and therefore the stress level was the same but their ability to cope with it was better um, after the controlled crying technique. We don't know for sure, um, so it needs more research. Um, but, yeah, for personally, I think this is a last resort um, action. So the age, the recommended age is generally six months and plus, um, so beyond six months. Personally, I think this should be used as a last resort. Um, so as I may have mentioned before, I think that if you're so sleep deprived um, that you cannot respond to your baby during, you know, cannot be the responsive during the day, or if you're so sleep deprived that you're um, thinking of hurting your baby or that sort of thing, then I think a quick acting technique like this might be justified. Um, but uh, yeah, if if you can, I'd try other techniques first and whatever you decide to do, I'd get help. Um, so get support. Um, this technique, although it has quick um, effects, usually within sort of three, three nights, three to four nights, um, it's still an extremely painful and probably um, sleep, sleep deprived few nights and you probably will need help to, to get through it. Okay, so I'd love to hear from you. Have you used any of these tactics? Um, because there's obviously we can learn a lot from the research, but we can learn a lot from each other too. So please do share your experiences with these tactics or any others. Um, and please consider leaving a review. That would be great. I'd love to hear from you and hear what you think, um, an honest review, because um, that will help me to improve and help, the, to, help to get the word out there if, if it's a positive review. Okay, so next week we'll be looking at effective modelling. Um, so, and we'll apply that to bedtime and other times as well. So thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Okay.